morning. Bad news this week. You heard the FDA is uh, thinking about uh, outlawing trans fats. Did you hear that? All right, all of you mega stuffed Oreo lovers, and I know there's some of you out there, you know, hey, stock up because they're not going to be here much longer. Just want to let you know that. It's my gift to you this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. On June 12, 1987, some of you are old enough to remember that, President Reagan gave a speech at the Brandenburg Gate near the Berlin Wall. And it was a challenge that he issued in that speech to Mikhail Gorbachev, who was then the General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. There he spoke words that have been called his most famous words of his presidency. In his speech, he celebrated the progress of Western Germany since World War II, while at the same time grieving the fact that so many people in Eastern Europe were still living under the tyranny of communist rule. And he challenged Mr. Gorbachev, many of you remember this, come here to this gate and do what? Tear down the wall. I loved that statement. I still remember it to this day. I remember where I was when I first heard him speak those words. And that statement would lead to communism crumbling over the next two years. And 29 months later, on November 9th, 1989, after increasing public unrest, East Germany finally opened the Berlin Wall. And by the end of that year, official operations to dismantle the wall began. And with the collapse of the communist governments of Eastern Europe and eventually the Soviet Union itself, the tearing down of the wall there in Berlin epitomized that collapse for all of history. Can, can you imagine those who suffered under the oppression of communism? Can you imagine those people ever making a decision to leave freedom and to go back to the tyranny that they had experienced for so long? I remember about 10 years later, I was with a group of high school students in the country of Slovenia. And Slovenia had been in communism and I remember speaking to uh, some of those uh, high school, early college students, assuming that they would think that this was the greatest thing in the world now that they were free and they were no longer under the tyranny of communism. And I said to them, can you imagine ever going back? And to my dismay, several of them said, yes, <laughs> capitalism was a little tougher than they thought it might be. Reminded me of the children of Israel. You remember them right after being taken out of Egypt where they had been under bondage for so many years and yet when they got out and things began to get a little tough, they said, what? Take us back. It was better when we were in Egypt. At least we had a place to lay our head and at least we had a little bit of food. But for most of us who have experienced freedom, especially if you've ever been in bondage, the thought of going back into that environment is unbelievably hard to imagine. It's unfortunate, but the churches in Galatia, from a spiritual standpoint, were in effect doing just that. They had heard Paul and others teach that a relationship with Jesus was possible when we placed our trust in Christ alone as our Savior, as the payment for our sin. And they believed that, and as a result of believing that, they were no longer under the bondage of sin, they were free. They had experienced freedom, and yet they were being led back into the bondage of the law by some who wanted to add to that grace other things. And that's what we've been talking about the last several weeks. It's a theme of the book of Galatians. You know, it's one thing for someone who is hostile to the gospel 
to lead new Christ followers or even people that have trusted Christ for some time for them to be led astray. But it's quite another when someone who loves and teaches the pure gospel by his or her poor example leads others back to the bondage of the law. Now I need to, in our context this morning in Galatians chapter 2, I need to set up the context for you today so that you, you get a little feel for, for where we are in this particular book. And it's going to require that I go back to the Old Testament, back to the book of Leviticus, and I work you all the way from Leviticus to Galatians. You okay with that? Good, let's go. All right. I'm actually not going to do that. But I do need to go back into the Old Testament. You know, some of you know anyway, that there were clean laws that were instituted or, or dietary laws. These were a complicated series of regulations for worshipers to follow in order to be ceremonial, clean, and acceptable for the presence of God in worship. And the people could not draw close to God if they had eaten certain food or if they had even been around or been associated with or touched people that had actually touched those things that were considered to be unclean. And if you uh, get a little bored with what I'm saying or you forgot your Ambien or something like that, and you want to take a little nap in a little while, go back to the book of Leviticus and get into chapters 11, 15, and 20. All right, by 15 you should be out. But if you make it to 20, and you can read about all of these dietary laws that the Jewish people were under. The ceremonial laws were, in effect, methods that God used to show that sinful people can't enter into his presence without cleansing. Now, here's the key. In the Gospels, Jesus made it very clear. In fact, one particular text, if you want to turn there, Mark chapter 7, verses 14 to 23, Jesus made it very clear that the dietary laws were no longer necessary, that he indeed was the fulfillment of the law. Now, he said in Mark chapter 7, verse 15, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person, those are what defile him. In fact, in verse 19, it says, Since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled, and so he declared all foods to be clean. Jesus made it very clear to his disciples, he made it very clear to people that he was teaching that, that they would no longer be under these dietary laws, that he, in effect, was the fulfillment of those laws. In fact, verse 20 says, And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, and pride and foolishness. All these things come from within, and those are what defile a person. Peter, like so many of us, after we've been taught something, Peter had a hard time grasping this. you got to understand, he grew up in a culture, he grew up in an environment where he, he lived under those strict dietary guidelines. He he understood how the game was to be played. He understood what to eat and what not to eat. In fact, God had to send him a vision at one point to convince him to understand that the ceremonial law was finished. If you go back to the book of Acts in chapter 10, you see a situation where he is confronted with a Gentile and he, and he goes with that Gentile and he, and he eats and, and he really struggles with that. And so God sends him a, a vision. And in chapter 11, he's telling people that have questioned who he's eating with and what he's eating. He tells them about his experience in Acts chapter 11, 
uh, verse 2 says this. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. Remember that term circumcision party, all right? They criticized him saying, verse 3, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them? Verse 4, but Peter began and explained it to them in order. He said, I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance I saw a vision. Something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. And looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. I typically have those visions after a big Italian meal and then going to bed shortly after that, right? I mean, what a weird vision that he has. But, but here's what he got out of that vision. Look at verse 7. It says, And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter! Kill and eat. That's a remarkable thing for a Jewish boy to hear, right? You mean I can go out and I can, I can, I can have all of those things that I, that I understood I was never even supposed to touch and now I can eat them? But I said, by no means, Lord, I am a good Jewish boy. For nothing common or unclean has ever entered into my mouth. I've never had a pulled pork sandwich and I'm not about ready to have one now. That's... Different translation maybe than what you have, but it's something similar to that. But look at verse 9 of chapter 11 of Acts. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. Peter's testimony in verse 10 is this happened three times. Why? Because he didn't get it the first time. He didn't get it the second. Sound familiar? Didn't get it the second time. And so finally the third time he got it. And verse 11 says, And behold, at that very moment the doorbell rang and said, Let's go get Bojangles. That's my translation, but it's something close to that. He finally got it. He finally went, Okay, I, I, I get it. And we know he got it because he enjoyed fellowship with all the believers and it seemed as if he was convinced that indeed the dietary laws were no more. So he obviously understands this. He understands he's no longer under these laws, that he can eat what he wants to eat, and he can eat with who he wants to eat with. That is until he finally caves into the pressure of the Judaizers who criticize him for eating with the Gentiles. And that's where we're going to pick up in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11, if you have your Bibles, turn there. Paul's not a happy camper, all right? That's how we find him here in verse 11. You've probably figured that out early in chapter 1, that he wasn't really happy with what was going on. But look at verse 11. But when Cephas, also known as Peter, came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face. And I don't know about you, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a fairly strong temperament, personality. But the thought of the Apostle Paul opposing me to my face is a really big deal, right? Those are strong words. Look at verse 12. For before certain men came from James... He was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. There's that term, circumcision party, again. After his experience with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, Peter had been called on the carpet early in Acts chapter 11, as we just read. He ably defended himself, but now all of a sudden he's become afraid again. It was as if bearded men with swords had entered in in front of, of, of Peter and said, Peter, we smell ham on your breath and there's smoke on your clothes. Who have you been with? And all of a sudden it was like, ah. 
With the arrival of some of the members of the opposition, Peter loses his courage. In fact, Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 25 says this, that the fear of man brings a snare. I wonder how many of us live that way in our lives. We are fearful. We live a good, a good majority, a good portion of our life being fearful, always concerned about what other people might think or feel about us. By the way, not because we're violating a biblical conviction or a biblical principle, but just simply because we might be doing something, we might be eating something or drinking something that they don't, in their minds, in their experience, find acceptable. And so we live in fear of those people. How do you account for, the, for Peter's fear? We know that Peter was an impulsive man, he could show amazing faith and courage one minute and then fail completely the next. Do you remember when he was out on the, on the sea and Jesus said, hey, get out of the boat and come to me. And we always criticize Peter, by the way, that he got out of the boat and because we know what happened a little later on. He took his eyes off Jesus and he began to drown. We always criticize him. We fail to talk about the disciples who laid cowering in the boat because they were afraid to take the first step out of the boat. We know he had moments like that. We know he boasted in the upper room that he would willingly die with Jesus and then he denied the Lord three times, one of those to a little servant girl. He wasn't perfect and nor are we, but Peter's fear led to Peter's fall. And so he ceased to enjoy those sweet times of fellowship that he was having with the Gentile believers and he separated himself from them. It would have been as if somebody had experienced freedom Metaphorically speaking, as we were talking about earlier, they had been under communism, they experienced freedom, and they were enjoying all of the things that freedom brings. And then because somebody thought they shouldn't be in that position, they decided to go back into bondage. Let me ask you this just for a moment. Side note, free of charge, you just get this today. But who is your circumcision party? Who is that group of people or who is that person that you consistently or maybe even constantly find yourself intimidated by? And by the way, it's not just adults, it's students as well. A group of people that put, a pressure, that put pressure on you to conform to a standard that you know isn't necessarily a biblical standard and yet you give in to that because of the pressure of that group of people. I would submit to you this morning that for most of us, we have a circumcision party. Whether it's an individual, whether it's a group of people, whether it's one individual or many individuals, we all have a circumcision party. Peter had his. And so Peter falls right back into this trap of legalism. Now we have to take a moment and define a couple of terms. We're going to talk about these terms again in a few weeks, in the weeks ahead certainly. But for the sake of context this morning, I need to give you a couple of definitions. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write down simply the word liberty. Let me give you a definition of the word liberty. We might put as an adjective in front of that Christian liberty, all right? Liberty is this. These are my definitions. They didn't come out of a theological workbook, all right? These are mine. They're mine and they're understandable. Isn't that a great thing, right? So you don't have to go and read them and go, I don't even understand the definition to the word that I didn't understand before I read the definition, all right? You're going to understand these. Liberty is this. Liberty is the freedom to live according to clearly identified biblical principle rather than the tyranny of man-made rules. All right, did you get that? Liberty is the freedom to live according to clearly identified biblical principles rather than the tyranny of man-made rules. And I love that. 
I love the fact that I am free in Christ and as a result of my freedom in Christ, I have experienced liberty. I live according to clearly identified biblical principles. I shepherd a church based on clearly identified biblical principles. I shepherd the children in my home based on clearly identified biblical principles because I have experienced liberty. I have experienced freedom through Christ. Amen? That better be louder than that. Amen? That you can experience that kind of freedom, that you can have a ham sandwich. That's awesome. Yeah. All right, that's liberty. Number two is legalism. Legalism, again, a very simple definition. Legalism is this. God gave us 10 commandments and forgot several others. I'm his messenger to let you know what they are. Did you get that? Legalism is this. God gave 10 commandments and he forgot several. I'm his messenger to let you know what they are. Sound familiar to anybody? Many of us, unfortunately, have lived here. We have lived so long in this world. Fortunately, there are some of you here this morning, and, and this is somewhat spinning right over your head because yeah, I can't believe people would live like that. I mean, I, I, I don't live by a set of rules. Partly you've got a problem there because you're not living according to clear, clearly identified biblical principle yet either. Wait till January. We're going to talk about that in Galatians chapter 5. But some of you, it's just rolling right over your heads because I thought everybody was free, right? There are others of us that are here this morning, me being probably the chief, And I understand what it is like to live under legalism. Where God gave us 10 commandments and he forgot several, let me clearly define for you what those are. And I, quite frankly, have gotten to the point in my own personal life where I despise legalism. I despise it when I see it in others, but you know what's most sobering is when, unfortunately, it raises its head in my own life and I see it in my own life. Legalism for me was defined in several ways as I was growing up. Uh, It was defined many times by music. There was this African beat. And in that African beat that was in Africa, they used that beat to sacrifice little children. So do not listen to that beat. By the way, if 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 you had the album on your turntable and you took the belt and you turned it into a figure eight and you played it backwards, you would hear certain things. Anybody ever hear this stuff? Yeah, some of you did, right? And I remember going to the seminars with a guy named Scorch Erickson. They call him Sketch. I now call him Scorch. I mean, it was just, and he would, and he would tell you these things and he would put lyrics up on, it, on, on, the, on the screen and he would, he would tell you that this is, what the, this is what these words, can't you hear him saying, I love Satan, I love Satan. And I'm going, I really don't hear it. No, I don't really hear it. And then he kept saying, can't you, can't you hear it? I love Satan, I love Satan, I love Satan. And after a while you go, maybe he is. Maybe the guy is saying that he loves Satan, but how do you do that whole thing with the, the, the belt on the turntable? I don't really get that. And so rather than teaching me biblical principles, that, for example, I'm pretty convinced that we're going to get to heaven one day and we're going to find out that God likes lots of different styles of music, by the way. Some of you better be careful with that. You're going to say that rap music or that that hip-hop music or that, you know, that certain beat, that certain style of music. That cannot be honoring to God. You're going to get to heaven one day and figure out that God liked a lot of different kinds of music. And you missed it, right? But rather than teaching me clearly identified biblical principles, 
of how to make choices about music. They just played records backward for me and said, hey, the guy's saying he loves Satan. I don't listen to that. And he said, don't go to 7-Eleven. They, they sell pornographic magazines. Can't even go get a Slurpee? Nope, nope, no Slurpee for you. Don't go to the movie theater. You're supporting a corrupt industry. Well, let me ask you, what industry in America is not corrupt, right? Some of these same pastors that were telling me these things had all kinds of inconsistencies in their life. And oh, let's not forget the fact that the women shouldn't wear pants. Why? Well, because there's this verse in Deuteronomy and it says that a woman should not wear that which pertaineth to a man. As a child, you go, I guess that's what he meant. He meant women aren't supposed to wear Levi's. The problem is, in Deuteronomy, nobody was wearing Levi's. Everybody was wearing a dress. <laughs> you know what the text referred to? It refers to, if you study it in the original language and you go back and you look at context, it was undergarments. And yet some crazy, off-the-wall, legalistic pastor is telling ladies, don't wear pants. That's which pertaineth to a man. So they're playing soccer in skirts. That's stupid. <laughs> you ought to be amening. Some of you ought to be amening. You came out of that world. You know what I'm talking about. And then they said, you can't dance. Can't dance because if you, if you move a certain way, if you move a certain way, you're going to cause people to stumble. Well, if I move a certain way, I might cause people to stumble, but it ain't going to be because they're lusting after me. I can, assure, I can assure you of that. And so I grew up not being able to dance. And I'm telling you, I think I missed something. Now, I'm not telling you to be dancing like Miley Cyrus. I'm not, all right, we're not going there. I'm not telling you to do that. I'm not telling you to emulate uh, sex on a dance floor. That's not what I'm saying. But did not David dance unto the Lord? And by the way, you look at what he was wearing when he danced unto the Lord. You got a problem contextually, all right, with the text. Here's my whole point. I don't want to go off too far because I could go, I got a lot of examples of that. Here's the point Christ has set his followers free. We no longer live under the law. We are no longer enslaved by the dominating authority of sin and no longer plagued by a life of guilt and shame. We are, as John chapter 8, verse 36, because the Son has set us free, we are what? We are free indeed, free in Christ. We're liberated from the shackles and released from the bondage of sin. And it's tragic that so many believers do not live grace-based lives to the fullest extent. In fact, one pastor said it this way, far too many Christians are uptight, inflexible, inhibited, overly cautious, and filled with fear. The reason isn't difficult to understand. The relentless, joyless, intimidating, grace-killing message of legalism has eclipsed the son's message of freedom, leaving us victimized and paralyzed, obsessively concerned about what others may think or say or do. That's the problem. And let me just tell you this this morning, Northwest Community Church, you should only care what I think about any issue as it relates to the Word of God. And I understand my responsibility is to make it very clear when I give you an opinion as opposed to when I am teaching you clearly defined biblical truth. When I preach for you clearly defined biblical truth, it's not an option. If you want to be an obedient Christ follower, you do it. When I give you my opinion, it's just that. It's my opinion. It's like belly buttons. Everybody's got one. 
S. Lewis Johnson, in his paper, The Paralysis of Legalism, wrote this. One of the most serious problems facing the Orthodox Christian Church today is the problem of legalism. And one of the most serious problems facing the church in Paul's day was the problem of legalism. In every day, it's the same. Legalism wrenches the joy of the Lord from the Christian believer, and with the joy of the Lord goes his power for vital worship and vibrant service. Nothing is left but cramped, sober, dull, and listless profession. The truth is betrayed, and the glorious name of the Lord becomes a synonym for a gloomy killjoy. The Christian under law is a miserable parody of the real thing. And I say, amen. And I refuse to live that way. I refuse to live my life under man-made laws when I am free in Christ. Now, before you get too excited about that, and some of you are going, woo-hoo-hoo, wow, it's a new day in town. Before you get too excited about that, all right, January's coming. In January, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5, where Paul writes these words. For we were called the freedom, brothers, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Some of you remember our study in the book of First Peter. Peter said in chapter 2, verse 16, Leave, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. It, it, see, it's one thing to know the true gospel, and it's another thing to live the true gospel. The tragedy here is that Peter is a hypocrite. But not only that, look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. You know, legalism spreads like cancer, does it not? The problem is, is that many of us, because of a pastor, because of a leader, for some of us because of, I believe in some cases, well-meaning parents who bought into a, a legalistic lifestyle, we were led astray as well. And that's what happened with these people. As a result of, of Peter behaving one way, Barnabas was led astray as well, and that legalism was spreading. Verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, let, let me stop right there. I pray that that will be a characteristic, not only of the elders of Northwest Community Church, but of each and every person. That when we see behavior that is not in step with the gospel, we will confront it. And by that, I mean in both ways. I mean when we see somebody adding to the gospel, thereby adding something to the word of God, that we stop that. Because the gospel is very clear that it's Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. Or when somebody does not behave consistently with who they are in Christ, we will confront it. That's exactly what Peter is doing here, or Paul is doing here with Peter. Augustine said this, it's not advantageous to correct in secret an error which occurred publicly. It's easy to look at this text and go, well, he should have taken him aside. He should have taken him into a side room and talked to him. I always said when I was a youth pastor that, uh, uh, that I would confront sin that was private in private, and when necessary, I would confront public sin in public. And I think that that's what's necessary here. This has happened publicly, and Paul wants to make sure that everybody understands that it's not acceptable. And so Paul said to Peter, he said, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? 
Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, the message, he said it this way. If you, a Jew, live like a non-Jew when you're not observing when you're not being observed by the watchdogs from Jerusalem, what right do you have to require non-Jews to conform to Jewish customs just to make a favorable impression on your old Jerusalem cronies? I like that. Here's soul-searching time. Soul-searching time for each one of us. If liberty, what we talked about before, if the true gospel of grace, faith alone in Jesus, is worth fighting for, and the message is worth fighting for, But it's one thing, as I said earlier, to know the true gospel, and it's quite another thing to live the true gospel. If if the pure gospel is worth fighting for, then isn't liberty worth emulating? In fact, I'm going to ask you parents in the room this morning, I'm going to ask you that question. If you want to make sure that your kids understand the true gospel, is it not imperative that you live the true gospel, that you behave in a fashion that is consistent with the true gospel message. I'm going to give you something I didn't give the last service, all right? Because if we go past noon, it's really not a big deal to you. I know it's not. I read this just this weekend, and I was going to save it for another sermon, and I'll probably use it again, but, but I think for some of you, this would be good to hear. I got this just this week. This sentiment was stirred in me afresh when I read an interview with VeggieTales creator Phil Visser. He was reflecting on how the Christian message he was trying to teach wasn't Christianity at all. He said this, and I quote, I looked back at the previous 10 years and realized I had spent 10 years trying to convince kids to behave Christianly without actually teaching them Christianity. And that was a pretty serious conviction. You can say, hey kids, be more forgiving because the Bible says so. Or, hey kids, be more kind because the Bible says so. But that isn't Christianity. It's morality. And that was such a huge shift for me from the American Christian ideal. We're drinking a cocktail, he said, that's a mix of the Protestant work ethic, the American dream, and the gospel. And we've intertwined them so completely that we can't tell them apart anymore. Our gospel has become a gospel of following your dreams and being good so God will make all your dreams come true. It's the Oprah God. So what's your objective? Do you teach your kids be good because the Bible tells you to? Or do you teach your kids that they will never be good without Christ's offer of grace? There's a huge difference. One leads to moralism. The other leads to brokenness. One leads to self-righteousness. The other leads to a life that realizes that Christ is everything and that nothing else matters. He said, I want my kids to be good. We all do. But as our kids grow up, the truth of the gospel can easily get lost somewhere between salvation, where we know we need Jesus, and living life, where we tend to say, I've got this. My experience is that the vast majority of parents are encouraging moral behavior in their kids so that God will bless their unusually self-centered pursuits. It's the American dream plus Jesus, and it produces good moral pagans. Because the world has enough pagans, even plenty of really nice ones, What we need is kids who fully grasp the reality reality that they have nothing to offer, but who intimately know a God who has everything they need. It's convicting, isn't it? Do you know the gospel, and do you live the gospel? Paul goes on in verses 15 to 21, and we have to hurry. He gives the doctrinal reason why Peter's behavior is wrong. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth, and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Don't miss this doctrinal lesson. It's that great word, justification. That word that was used to describe the act of a judge declaring an accused person not guilty, but to be right before the law. It was the opposite of being declared guilty and condemned. And throughout Scripture, justification refers to God's declaring a sinner to be guiltless on the basis of faith in him. It's the free and gracious act by which God declares a sinner right with himself and he forgives and he pardons and he restores and he accepts him on the basis of nothing. (laughs) Just simply because of our trust in the person and work of his son Jesus on the cross. Verse 17, but if our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I've torn down, I prove myself, Paul says, to be a transgressor. Paul's argument goes something like this. Peter, you and I didn't find salvation through the law. We found it through faith in Christ. But now, after being saved, you're going back to the law. This means that Christ alone didn't save you. Otherwise, you wouldn't have needed the law. Furthermore, you've preached the gospel of God's grace to Jews and Gentiles and have told them that they're saved by faith. And now you're trying to go back and trying to add the law to that. And by going back into legalism, you're building what you've torn down. This means that you sin by tearing it down to begin with. In other words, Paul's arguing from Peter's own experience of the grace of of God to go back to the law was to deny everything that had been done for him and through him, through God. Verse 19 For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to the law. And to go back to the law, to go back to a list of things and trying to please, trying to, to gain favor with God, trying somehow to make him happy is to go back to the graveyard, somebody that has been risen. Romans 6 is abundantly clear that we're dead to sin and we should no longer live to please our sinful nature, but to live to and for God. And so Paul gives his testimony in verse 20, a verse that so many of us are familiar with. We've memorized this verse. We could preach a couple weeks just on this verse. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The only way I'm able to live is because God is living through me. He's giving me the ability to live in such a way that I bring pleasure to him. It is not what I do that brings pleasure to him. That's Paul's testimony. And if you're here this morning and you've trusted Christ alone as your Savior, that should be your testimony as well. And so verse 21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law then Christ died for no purpose. To go back to the law is to nullify the grace of God. Here's the bottom line. If the law is God's way of salvation, then why did Jesus die, right? If keeping up with a bunch of lists was the way to salvation, if you were God, would you send your only son to die on a cross? And if you and I behave that way, then what we in effect do is we nullify the gospel. That's why the title of our series is Jesus plus nothing equals what? Everything. Let me close by asking you to put yourself in one of these three positions this morning. There's some of you, I, 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 
I hesitate to say many of you, but I think there are some of you. You are experiencing the joy that comes from trusting in Christ alone as your Savior. You are living as free. Oh, you remember what it was like to be in bondage? You remember what it was like to be under the weight of sin? But you trusted in Christ alone as your Savior and you're no longer under that weight. Your sin debt has been paid. Your eternal home is secure. And you are living out John 10.10 where Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it, how? To the full, to the max, abundantly. There's some of you here and that's the way you're living this morning. You got this whole grace thing figured out. That's the way you live. That's the way you parent. And it's awesome for you. And to those two or three of you here this morning, that's great. That's fantastic. And I don't say that sarcastically because I believe there probably are a few of you here this morning and, and you get that. You've got that great combination by understanding who you are in Christ and what it means to live your life in such a way that you bring pleasure to the heart of God because of who you are in him. It's not many of us, though. There's a lot of us, I think, that find ourselves in category number two. And that is we are followers of Jesus, but we live as if we're not free. It would be like the person who has been in a prison cell and all of a sudden somebody comes and they say, you've been pardoned. <laughs> you've been found not guilty. Your, your, your stuff, your, your crime is no longer going to be held against you. And they swing the door wide open and you go, I can't leave. I've been here too long. And so you stay right there. And you still try to gain favor with God and with others by the things you do. And in some cases, you are so proud of the things that you don't do. I think that's a lot of us that are here this morning. Here's the problem at the heart of legalism is pride. It's pride. That's what keeps so many people, by the way, from trusting in Christ alone as their Savior. It's pride. It's a refusal to admit spiritual bankruptcy. And that's why the doctrine of grace that we're talking about here in Galatians, it stirs up so much animosity because we want to believe that somehow we can play a part, we can play a role, that we somehow make ourselves acceptable to God, and that's legalism. Here's what you need to do to defend against legalism. Four things real quickly. Number one, stand firm in your freedom in Christ. You ought to celebrate that. Not as... Paul will say in Galatians chapter 5, not as a license in order that you might sin. Romans 6, should we continue in sin that, God, that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we who are dead to sin live any longer to it? I'm not saying that, but you ought to stand firm in that you are free in Christ. And God loves you as much today as he's ever loved you or ever will love you. You are loved completely by the God of the universe. Stand firm in your freedom in Christ. Number two, don't even try to please people, right? I talked to several people after the first service and they confessed, that's, I, I, that's the way I live my life. I live my life trying to please people, some of which I don't even know, many of which I do know and don't like. I spend my life trying to please those people. Let me tell you, if you want to defend against legalism, that performance-based relationship with God that somehow you gain his favor, you don't even try to please people. I say this to my sons, I have to say this to my daughter because she's almost perfect, but I say this to my sons all the time. Not really. I say this to my sons all the time. Guys, if you will live to please Jesus with your life, trust me, I'll be pleased. 
Now think about that for just a moment. I will tell you, Northwest Community Church, you live to please Jesus. The people that you care about having favor on you, they will be pleased. The people that you don't care what they think anyway, it really doesn't matter. Just live to please Jesus. Don't live to please other people. Number three, identify legalism. If you ever see it here at Northwest, raise a flag, raise the banner high. High, high, high. We don't want to be that, amen? We don't use our freedom as a license, by the way, either. Galatians 5, January, it's coming. Identify legalism and 3A, when you see it, run from it. Run from it. And then lastly, just simply embrace clear biblical truth. Great thing is when you understand, know and understand biblical truth, here's what happens. You can identify legalism. I can. I know. Because I'm pretty good understanding of this book. And when you tell me or you have some expectation on me that's not in the book, keep it to yourself. Really not interested. If you think about writing me an email telling me that I should conform to your personal preference or standard, save your time. Write somebody else an email. Because I'll only respond back with a simple statement anyway. I say that seriously and lovingly. If I violate clear biblical conviction and you know your Bible, then stand firm in that. Stand firm in that. Embrace clear biblical truth. When you know and understand biblical truth, it's easy to identify legalism. Eugene Peterson said this, the word Christian means different things to different people. To one person, it means a stiff, upright, inflexible way of life, colorless and unbending. To another, it means a risky, surprise-filled adventure, lived tiptoe at the edge of expectation. He closed that statement by saying this. I love this. If we get our information from the biblical material, there is no doubt that the Christian life is a dancing, leaping, daring life. Don't you love that? That's what the Christian life is. And yet for me, so much of my growing up, I thought it was a, don't beat me, God. I won't dance anymore. I didn't, but I won't dance anymore. I won't listen to that anymore. Come be a Christian. It's fun. Really. The Christian life is to be a dancing, leaping, daring life. I agree with Eugene Peterson. Third category is you're still carrying a heavy sin debt because you're trying to make it on your own. And unfortunately, that's some folks that are here in the auditorium this morning. And I love you, but you can't make it on your own. Here's the problem. There's some of you, and you're so good that Satan has convinced you that because you're so good, that somehow one day you'll just kind of make it in. You just get grandfathered in because of your niceness. That's not the way it works. It's Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. Here's the cool thing, is when we come to him and ask for forgiveness, he doesn't shame us. He doesn't ask me to go stand in a corner you don't clean yourself up to come to God. You come just as you are. And that is, by the very definition, grace. I don't deserve it, but I come just as I am. And he loves me. And he embraces me. He accepts me. Gives me the ability to be able to live free. No longer in bondage, but free. Let's pray. 
Father, thanks for the truth of your word. I wish I'd understood these things when I was about seven or eight years old. God, there are some moms and dads here today that really need to take heart to what we've said. Because it's not my opinion, it's the gospel. We need to quit trying to conform our kids to an image that we've created is pleasing to God and instead teach them the pure, unadulterated gospel. Because God, I firmly believe in my own heart that when we grasp the enormity of the gospel, that what we deserve is an eternity apart from God, eternal damnation, but because of your great love for us, wherewith you loved us, we come into a relationship with Jesus. God, when we grasp that, when we grasp the enormity of that, behavior changes. God, I pray that you'd cause us to grasp this message this morning. Thanks for giving us the example of Peter. And while I wish he hadn't behaved that way, I'm glad he did because I've done it. And I'm glad that Paul confronted the wrong behavior because we need to be confronted with it. God, cause us to live consistently with who we are because our sin debt has been forgiven. And Lord, I, I pray for that person this morning who has yet to cross over that line of faith, who's still trying to do good things and in some cases does a lot of good stuff and they look real Christianly. God, I pray that you'd cause that person to step across the line of faith, to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ and understand what it means to be free. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.